Welcome to Live in Air Podcast, your fortnightly show with interviews and insights on meditation, mindfulness, and consciousness. This podcast is brought to you by liveinthere.com, and I'm your host, Giovanni Dinstman. This is episode number two, and I'm interviewing Nicholas Stein, a veteran nonfiction TV producer and showrunner for National Geographic Channel's breakout hit, Border War. Nicholas spent the better part of four years deeply embedded with the tactical units of various federal and other law enforcement agencies. His continual reporting on human suffering inside the U.S.-Mexican border left him with journalistic PTSD. Seeking relief from the traumatic experiences, Nick found great healing and equanimity in the practice of secular mindfulness. He has also introduced mindfulness at law enforcement and security conferences, and will soon be bringing the practice into LA prison system. In this episode, you will learn how mindfulness brought him the healing that years of therapy couldn't bring, how he tried meditation and failed multiple times, then finally found meditation through crisis, how we are not the voices in our head, not our thoughts, and the importance of correctly describing our experience and emotions. So let's get started. Hi, Nicholas. How are you feeling today? Terrific, Giovanni. Nice to talk to you. So I think we can start uh, you talking a little bit about your background. Uh, what do you do? How you have come to meditation in your personal journey? Well, I'm happy to tell you this. I certainly came to meditation with a thud or a bang or in a crisis, frankly. It wasn't sort of an idle curiosity from a yoga class and suddenly I'll try some meditation. I had tried meditation and failed any number of times. I had no real guidance. I had no real burning need. I didn't even know where to look to get help. And so like so many people, you know, you sit on your couch, you try to meditate, your mind goes mad uh, and you tell yourself you're terrible at it mm. and you quit. <laughs> and I think I was like many people who sort of tried it like that. Well, when it finally stuck, it had to stick because of a, of a crisis. But I'll back up real quick to say that I'm a television producer. I make nonfiction or documentary style television. I work, uh, live in Los Angeles, and I work, uh, I've been in this business for almost 40 years. And I've worked for everybody. I've worked for National Geographic and the Discovery Channel and A&E and History and PBS and you name it. I've seen all these different genres come and go, you know, from really high quality blue chip documentaries to this rather ghastly reality television <laughs> thing that is affecting all of us. But I try to stay on the, on the quality side of things. And I've been very lucky and very blessed to have a, an interesting career which included an enormously ambitious project, which was a big hit. And the big hit was a show called Border Wars, and it was on National Geographic uh, Channel. And uh, we started it in 2009, and it was really as deeply embedded with law enforcement as you can be. Hmm. As a matter of fact, we had unprecedented access with all of the aligned forces of the United States along the southern border, which includes all of the Mexican border, of course, and southern Florida and Puerto Rico. Mm. 
because the threats and the drugs and the guns and the illegal aliens and everything are coming through all aspects of all of that. So I got the job. We crewed up and we went down there and we kind of got rid of the safety net completely and lived like Border Patrol agents do. And uh, we put ourselves in a lot of harm's way. We saw a lot of, of fascinating and terrible things. Uh, none of us were really trained, you know, to see mm. the levels of suffering that we saw. And it ranged from seeing babies inside of shooting galleries. And shooting galleries are heroin dealers, you know, domiciles in which you see, you know, junkies and rather violent people and lots of drugs and lots of paraphernalia and a lot of people coming and going. And then you'll see small children running around in diapers right there in Laredo, Texas at a heroin house. Wow. I mean, that's one kind yes. of yeah. misery. We fished people out of the Rio Grande River, dead bodies out of the Rio Grande River, young people who had died, uh, drowned uh, in the Rio Grande, uh, either swimming to get across as a migrant or were a drug mule that got either killed and thrown in the river or didn't make it for one reason or another. We went into stash houses that uh, were horrible locations with you know, a trailer that was falling apart that had 40 uh, migrants from Honduras and El Salvador, and all of them were being held hostage in these places. Often they just crossed over a few days before they were held just five miles north of the Rio Grande, and their uh, relatives had been contacted and said, your uh, relative will die unless you give us more money to get them to North Carolina or Michigan or California or wherever. They had people locked in rooms. They had people whose uh, fingers had been cut off to prove, you know, that they were, uh, the cartel was not to be messed with. And you're not really aware that you were going to go through all of that before, were you? I knew what the job entailed, but until you experience it, it is just nothing quite like it. And I'd had other jobs that were intense. Uh, I'd even had another job that involved uh, law enforcement at the border, but I'd mostly been in the Canadian border. <laughs> so I, mm. you know, I understood some of the issues. But this was the kind of thing that not only did we see these levels of suffering, and suffering not only in the parts of migrants and, and drug mules and victims, but we also on the part of the agents and the officers and the law enforcement personnel who did this day in and day out, a very difficult, very lonely, very scary job where people didn't even know what they did or appreciate what they did and often were very hostile to them. So we watched the suffering of the men and women that we were embedded with. So it's one thing, and then, you know, look, there's a lot of adrenaline attached to this too. And me and my crews were really high on adrenaline half the time. It was commonplace to get into a patrol car and start a shift with an agent and profiling that agent and next thing you know the radio goes off and he just stomps on the gas and you're going 95 miles an hour in a heartbeat and you're in a car chase and it happens you know we just called that Tuesday that was just life and you got used to it sort of you know your heart actually doesn't race as much after a while because mm. you, you trust these guys are great drivers and you you hope to God, nothing bad will happen. But nevertheless, you were living in this accelerated way. And the show was a hit. I mean, it was the biggest hit I ever had in terms of any show that I ran. 
we premiered as the highest rated premiere in the history of the National Geographic Channel. And we went on to be the highest rated series in the history of the National Geographic Channel. So what happened was it went from a four show kind of pilot to suddenly we had to do 12 episodes and 12 episodes and 12 episodes. It just took over my life. Yeah. So this then the repeated exposure started to really take a toll on me and my crew. So it wasn't just that we did it for six months. We did it for almost four years. And there was a toll taken on all of us, not only at the border, but also being away from home and having our own home lives kind of, you know, ground up in this thing. I would come home for two weeks and then I'd go to Washington or New York where we were editing the show or go to D.C. where we were, you know, had to constantly nurture the relationship with all the federal agencies and all the commissioners and everything, uh, getting the show renewed, getting it promoted, getting it, you know. And so then I'd come home again. I'd be home for 10 days. and I'd be gone for six weeks. And then I'd start that again. And then I'd leave for five weeks, six weeks. So by the time the show ended, and it ended with some politics as well, because the network had been taken over by Fox Broadcasting, uh, who you in Australia know perfectly mm. well. Uh, I mean, really, Rupert Murdoch, Fox Broadcasting. Mm. <laughs> there was enormous changes at National Geographic Channel. People were getting fired left and right. That was very traumatic for everybody. We'd all been working together for years and years and years. There was new bosses put in place who have since now left, of course, because the, um, the Game of Thrones that is network, <laughs> network television continues. But they also uh, started putting on different restrictions and different folks uh, involved with my show, which I had done for three and a half years completely independently. And, and so politics entered the, the thing. So not only was I burnt out on the actual work of the show itself, but then we all had to deal with politics of new people coming in and taking over and changing and in some cases damaging the relationships that we had built with the Border Patrol and all of these great men and women who trusted us. And we were as good as our word. And then the other people came in and had a say. So this is not unlike what happens to agents and officers. Not only do they go through the trauma of their own, of what happens in the field, you know, with the dangers and, and all of that, all the misery. But they also go through a lot of trauma based on their own police culture and bureaucracy. And they get a new chief, a new sector chief, a new captain, a new somebody who's in charge. And, of course, they go through a lot of bureaucratic trauma as well, um, wondering if people really care about their well-being and so forth. So I feel very much in parallel with these uh, agents and officers because I experienced both the field trauma and the political bureaucratic trauma which really is all many of us go through in the, in the workplace. And by the time I left Border Wars, I was burnt out and not happy. And frankly, my marriage was in terrible shape because I had been essentially gone about 70% of the time for about four years. Hmm. What a story. What a story. The, the amount of suffering that you, that you went through and that you saw. It's, uh, it's, it's not common for us, for most people, to, to see this amount of suffering. And would you say that this was a fuel for your practice? This uh, made you come back to meditation with, with more hunger, with more thirst? So many of us are, are blessed with having some body, some person in our lives who 
in this case, I guess, reintroduced me to mindfulness and meditation practice. Now, I came through the door with the help of my therapist, who is a brilliant guy, who I had seen in Los Angeles, but constantly not seeing him because I was on the road. When I left Border Wars, I stumbled into a job somehow in Montreal, Canada. And I moved up there. And frankly, uh, it was I almost had to because if I'd come home, I'm not sure I'd be married today because I was a mess and the marriage was a mess. So we sort of took some time and I went to Montreal. And I was Skyping with my therapist, right? And he had said to me any number of times, he says, Nick, I really think you should try this thing called mindfulness, mindfulness meditation. And I remember just rebuking him and or just keeping it at bay. I literally think I said to him, I don't want to talk about mindfulness. I want to talk about my problems. Well, talking about my problems wasn't making me any happier. Mm. <laughs> Going over the story again and again, right? The miserable story of the last season of Border Wars and my problems with my marriage and, and the fact that I was depressed and the fact that I was anxious and was this going to ever go away? And <laughs> was, uh, you know, would the people in Montreal suspect, you know, yeah. that I was this way because I was faking it pretty good up there, you know? It wasn't helping. I could talk all day long about these things as more thoughts and more thoughts and more thoughts and more explanation and more rationale and more storytelling and more mythology and not feeling any better. So finally, finally, I Skyped with him and I remember saying to him very distinctly, you know, Doc, what's the name of that book again? And he goes, what What book? I go, you know, that thing by that guy, Zinn. Uh, what's that thing again? <laughs> so I think it's like Zinfandel. What, you know, something about that mindful something. And then he tells me, he says, John Cabot Zinn, Full Catastrophe Living. And, of course, the long subtitle. He says, that's the book. And I said, well... I think I'm, I'm ready to try it. He says, well, you really should. And frankly, I came my whole life out of a very non-religious background without John's uh, work as a secular practice, without this enormous... I found a little Dharma group, a little Sangha of French Canadians mm. <laughs> in Montreal, <laughs> some of the loveliest people I've ever met, uh, and got into really meditating in a group, you know, and having the Dharma you know, explained to me mm. in a very Western Western way, you know. Mm. Um, and uh, all I can tell you is I was in terrible shape. I mean, I really thought my life was falling apart. My father died right in the middle of this. Uh, I didn't know if my marriage was going to last. I was rather hopeless, really. And, you know, because when you mess up your life at my age... <laughs> You know, I'm 61 now, but this was back when I was 50, you know, eight or something. Mm. You know, you think, you know, you don't have many chances to start over. Yes. If your mind tells you that you're done, you know, mm. that, uh, you know, what your career, your family and your marriage is over, then you, you convince yourself that you, you're really kind of screwed, you know. But now you, you, look, get, you, know. you look really well. <laughs> <laughs> so, so something must have happened. Well, I can tell you this. It didn't take long. You know how in, at the end of winter, you know, and spring comes and you know, the shoots come out of the ground, the little shoots of flowers, you know, just that first, that first green that happens after a long winter. I swear to God, those shoots were coming out of the ground for me 
within a week. I mean, one week, I was feeling less hopeless and more hopeful, and it shocked me. It really shocked me that this practice seemed to be bearing fruit so quickly. Now, it took a long time to get, you know, to where I am today, of course, but but you know how the feedback mechanism works. Mm -hmm. As soon as you see some progress, as soon as you feel a little better, as soon as you spend this time with your own thoughts and you learn uh, with the instruction that I had, and of course I sought more instruction. I mean, believe me, I'm in, that, I'm in my apartment in Montreal. I'm reading the book. I find Tara Brock. Oh, my gosh. There were others, you know, Pema Chodron, Joseph Goldstein, Sharon Salzberg. I mean, you know, I kind of went after sort of the great American Buddhists, you know, mm. uh, Jack Cornfield. But I kept coming back to Tara Brock because he had a fresh podcast every week. You know, between reading and listening and searching, it, you know, this is why the, the results started happening quicker. Because not only do you have the internal experience of meditation, but with the right instruction, you, you know how to do it. And you understand right away to begin to allow what's going on to be what's going on, hmm. to l stop believing your thoughts so vehemently, stop thinking because you think it, it's true, to really be a little more skeptical of the monkey in your brain that will not let you alone. And when you're depressed and anxious, the first thing you need is to stop believing your thoughts because your thoughts are killing you. Your thoughts are telling you terrible things about yourself and your situation. So when I began to understand the notion of observing my thoughts mm. to stepping away from them and not be tumbled inside of them, blindly stumbling and reactive, but start to, to find that space, you know, that space where you're suddenly watching the way your mind works and understanding you're not supposed to believe all your thoughts and in fact beginning to understand that these thoughts are not good reporters of reality they're not who in, you are they're, they're just not who <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> that's right that takes a little longer to mm. figure out but you when you finally realize they are not who you are and you begin to explore how to get closer to who you might really be and in my mind the way i think of it is i am not the voice in my head i may well be the presence that is listening hmm. to the voices if i can remember to identify with the listener the quiet wiser older kinder observer not the obnoxious <laughs> loquacious, mm, mm. <laughs> you know, complaining mind and sort of obnoxious roommate in your head who's opinionated about everything. I like to call it the internal journalist. He's writing stories exactly. about everything. Exactly, exactly. That's actually kind. That's a kinder way. <laughs> This is a, an internal journalist sounds kinder than obnoxious roommate in your head. <laughs> But when you begin to, uh, to listen and not be it, but observe it and understand that everybody's mind works like this. This is not uncommon. You're not crazy. <laughs> You're just human. Then you begin to get some peace. And when you begin to get a little bit of peace, 
you double down and then you start to get a lot of peace. Hmm. When I do something, I tend to do it all the way. <laughs> I'm really, I teach it and I, I consult with it. And I'm I, I, like you, I, I am excited to share it and I'm excited to, to help others if they want to learn about perhaps learning not to have their mind lead them around by the nose mm. <laughs> and to begin to get some peace and, and control. So many people out there, they are struggling with depression or stress or trauma, anxiety, and you were struggling with these things. And mindfulness was the key point for you to, to heal yourself, for you to come to a better place as you obviously are now. Would you say that to disengage with the thinking, to disbelieve your thoughts was the key point from mindfulness that made this difference in your life? I think that's probably at the core of it. When I think about 58 years of not understanding this, you know, decades and decades and decades of living in a really reactive way, right? I explain it to people where I say, I feel like I had a bag on my head with maybe two little slits for my eyes and I just stumbled around in the world. And I'm talking about a person who was successful. I mean, I was, I have a very successful career in television. I continually amazed <laughs> that people keep wanting to hire me. I just finished a big job for the Smithsonian Channel, you know, a six-part series. I'm uh, what you call high-functioning, but I nevertheless had a bag on my head <laughs> with two small slits for eyes. And this has been such a revelation to feel like slowly, I mean, you don't pull the bag off your head instantly. <laughs> but, you know, you slowly start to raise it up and you peek out. And the, the, what you see is just an entirely different way to be in the world. Because when you have a bag on your head, what are you doing? You're groping around in your environment, right? You're reaching out to try to figure out what is happening. And everything is a threat to you when you have a bag on your head. You know, oh, what's that? Oh, my God, you know, you might feel it and you can't quite even know what it is, but you're, you're going, oh, that feels bad or this could be bad or this email is going to be bad. Just like a snake or a, or a tiger back when we were all on the savanna, you know, and we needed our lizard brains and our amygdala to constantly fire off, you know, cortisol and adrenaline so we could rush away from danger and threats. Well, as we know, that's an wildly outdated, there's no need mm. to have those animal, not even animal, animals do better than we do, but really this constant hypervigilance and this constant monitoring for threats and this constant interpretation of stimuli and always trying to make it better, right? I don't like it. Make it better. Solve it. Fix it. I'm not comfortable. I must be comfortable. I'm planning, planning, planning and worrying and anxious about the future. I am regretting and I am sorry and I, uh, I have a story in the past which is who I am. Well, breaking, decoupling from those notions uh, to be, to arrive in the present moment, to really be able to not be a slave to reactive instincts of ours which don't work anymore. That's what I mean by having a bag on your head. You know, that's who you are inside the bag. But if you slowly, eventually lift the bag off your head, things are far more acceptable. You have increased your comfort zone. I talk about this a lot. You know, we have a comfort zone. Many of us walk around with a comfort zone that's really small. So it's really easy to be out of it. And your anxiety just races up as soon as you're, you're out of it. Well, Meditation and mindfulness increases the size of your comfort zone. Hmm. 
Makes it more comfortable. So, yeah, you're more comfortable more often in all kinds of situations. And instead of having a comfort zone, which is the size of your bedroom, you might have a comfort zone the size of half of a football pitch. <laughs> you know, as one of my teachers says, sometimes you're in a small room and there's an elephant in the room and it's just obsessing you, right? The problem is this elephant in the room. He said, you know what? With mindfulness meditation, you actually can push on the wall behind you and the two walls to your sides and they flop down and it turns out you're not in a room with an elephant. You're, in, you're with an elephant in a football field. That, that's a great metaphor. <laughs> I read it somewhere else, which is the metaphor of throwing a bucket of salt into a small pond or throwing yeah. a bucket of salt in the ocean. Exactly. The ocean doesn't get much more salty with a bucket. So mindfulness exactly. allows us to, to have this space to this expansion of consciousness. The problems are still there and the thoughts are still there, but they are so small and we can manage them. Or we can just look at them and laugh sometimes. <laughs> I, I agree. I think a sense of humor is a really good thing. In my classes, I teach um, I, about the monkey mind, you know, which is a wonderful metaphor that we all use, right? Mm -hmm. It's a classic metaphor. And I've often said, you know, particularly when you're trying to start a meditation, sit, get on the cushion, you know, get detached from this crazy day you're having and you try to make that transition to the cushion, I said, think of the monkey mind. There it is. You sit down. The monkey mind's going crazy, right? But instead of just stopping there, I said, make it a monkey. Like, make it a real monkey. <laughs> mm. And now you, you have a chance to, to calm that monkey down. Give it a banana. Tell it it's okay. Maybe pet it. Maybe, whether it's a cartoon monkey or a kind of a real monkey in your mind, the truth is, it brings a real smile to your face that you really do see the monkeyness of your mind. But if you make it more, you make it a real monkey, it actually makes you, makes you laugh hmm. and stop taking yourself so goddamn seriously. Right? That's right. And then I even went, took it further the other day and I said, you know those pictures out of National Geographic magazine where there's a snow monkey in Japan and those hot tubs, you know, those hot pools and they rise out of the water with the steam and the snow? Mm -hmm. I said, you're, you can turn your monkey mind and by the time you're ready to really get down and meditate, you can turn that monkey into that monkey. So the snow monkey. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but again, it, all of it is about stepping back and not being in your thoughts you don't say i'm angry you're not angry you see anger arising mm. yes you can feel anger you're not anger mm. it's simply another passing storm system just a low pressure system gonna fly right through and could be quickly replaced by i'm happy mm. and everything else yes. totally impermanent I think it's very important to, to use the right language because yeah. if you describe your experience as saying, I am angry, then suddenly you have completely identified yourself with the anger that has arisen and, yep. and, and there's little hope there. I mean, you, you are the anger. Instead of that, if you describe anger is here, that is a completely different thing. Anger is here is like anger is inside of me. I'm consciousness and I am observing that anger is inside of me is very different from saying and feeling I am angry. Very different. And the language is very important that way. You are no more angry or you are no more one thing than the weather is one thing, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, weather is a great metaphor because, you know, as we say in like New England, you know, if you don't like the weather, wait five minutes, 
right? It's just that way. And some of these ideas that I knew about before I started meditating, right? I could sit and talk to you about these ideas and these concepts. But until you sit alone, quietly, or, you know, with maybe some guided meditation or some combination of therein, and really um, try this stuff on as a body-mind exercise, where it is really just you and your mind and body working together, these ideas and concepts do not take, right? They don't stick. Hmm. They don't really mean much. They're like opening a fortune cookie and hmm. reading the fortune and thinking, I am now wise because the fortune told me something really wise, right? Hmm. This is why I tell everybody who I work with that you have to put yourself in that meditative, contemplative posture state, uh, and you have to do it consistently. Otherwise, all of this stuff is just more ideas and more ideas and more ideas and more ideas. And God knows we have enough ideas and notions and thoughts. But these thoughts actually have truth, but you, you can't live in those truths or know those truths until you sit with those truths and experience them in your body. That's the difference between meditation and a lot of philosophy or, you know, the kind of new age human growth potential stuff, you know, when you have affirmations, you know, uh, you know, as long and they're all fine. But I don't know anything. I really don't think there is anything that can substitute for meditation. Absolutely. Yeah. Direct experience is, is absolutely needed. In yeah. Zen Buddhism, they have this metaphor that you cannot eat the picture of a cake. It's not going to satisfy you. So just having the concept that, okay, yes, everything is impermanence, I get it. But until, until that is in your body, until that is in your mind, until that's yeah. the natural way that you perceive things, it's not going to help. It's like a picture of a cake. Completely. And look, a lot of people aren't going to end up with a practice because they just can't. Either they... It's been introduced to them and they tried it and they just don't have the will or the discipline. And let's face it, it is the world's simplest thing to do and the world's most difficult thing to do at the same time. <laughs> I mean, what could be simpler? The instructions are pretty simple, right? But let me share with you another thing I've, I've been playing with. I've used it with my sangha, my group, my monthly group, and feedback has been amazing. Mm -hmm. A lot of people will tell you the breath is the classic main point of focus, right? And there are others, of course. Sound, I love using sound, and for all the obvious reasons, it's, every sound you hear is unique into that moment and will never be repeated, and you know, it puts you in the presence. Um, there's body sensations. Point of focus and attention is clearly incredibly important technique to quiet the mind and to get yourself into a more and more contemplative space. Now, I personally use the breath, of course, as we all do. But I have found for myself, and it turns out for others, that it's not quite enough. I mean, 30 minutes of just concentrating on your breathing, even as detailed as you can make it, whether it's the tip of your nostrils, the back of your throat. You know, I mean, I, mm. I know teachers who will teach breathing techniques all day long that make it as interesting as it can possibly be and more nuanced than anything you ever imagined. Mm. But nevertheless, I was seeking another way, right? 
So I'll share it with you <laughs> and your listeners. I, I don't really have a name for it exactly, but it uses words, but very few. But it uses words that are very simple and actually have meaning, but myriad meanings, like multiple meanings. So layer upon layer of meaning, right? It's actually a series of about four phrases. They come from equanimity prayers. The one I used to start with is, this is how it is now. Sometimes people say, things are as they are, right? But they both mean the same thing. It's an allowance and an acceptance of reality as it is without an overlay of opinion, without an overlay of desire, without an overlay of aversion. You know, it's really a true allowing and an accepting. It's called equanimity or equanimous hmm. phrase. It's, so it's one of a number of equanimous phrases, right? So I started with that one. And it is, this is how it is now, or this is how it is right now, just to give it a little more punch at the end, right? And you can start with that, right? And you can just use that as your mantra or whatever. Use your breath along with it. It really does help, kind of like, okay, I'm accepting everything. I'm accepting how I felt before I was sitting. I'm accepting how I feel now. I'm just accepting this is present and here. But then I break it down, and I start to take it word by word. I actually call this the this meditation. <laughs> it's called the this meditation because this is how it is right now. It starts mm. with the word this, right? Mm. So I say the word this, and I'll repeat that, right? And I'll breathe with it. This, this. And it starts to focus the mind, this. And right away, you, your mind is, naturally goes, this what? This what? And right away, you think, okay, this breath. This breath. And now the breath is more interesting because you've identified it, right? And then you go, okay, this moment. Mm. This moment, right now, as distinct from any other, this is the one you're having right now. And you can do that and continue to sort of ask yourself, this what, this moment, and then you can say, this chair, this room, this house, this breeze, this light on my eyelids. It's amazing. Every time you do it, it makes you more present. Mm. It's a little active. But it's not, doesn't take you very far. <laughs> it keeps driving you deeper into the moment, right? Mm. Then after you do that, you can do that for a long time. <laughs> then you add the next word, this is. And then it becomes really interesting all of a sudden. This is what? What does that mean, this is? Is what? And you start to, your mind naturally kind of has a little Socratic dialogue with itself. But again, not too busy but not, but just enough. This is how it is. Well, how is it? You know? Mm. And Sounds you can like do a it. contemplation, a contemplation about the present moment coupled with mindfulness to, to bring the attention to the here and now. Exactly. Um, because I, exactly. I understand what you mean. Sometimes if you just stick to your breath, it can get boring, so to speak. Very boring. So that's why I advise people to, to also try other types of meditation. I did breathing meditation in the form of Zazen, for two and a half years and after that I, I changed to another type of meditation called Atma Vichara which is a self-inquiry comes from the non-dual tradition of India 
And for me, it went just much deeper, much deeper. But at the same time, those two and a half years practicing, focusing on the breath, I feel they were absolutely needed to kind of give the intensity of, of intention, keenness of mind to be able to stay with something. And as you said, you are making your own experiments. You're you're having yeah, experience, and you're seeing what right. works for you. And it's, that's exactly. That's and I share it with people just to say, I said, look, this is just something I made up. Uh, one of my teachers at UCLA, where I take classes, calls it your rigmarole. You know, everyone's got their own, your own way in which you meditate and how you get ready to meditate. And I go, this is how it is now. And then this is this is what this chair this, and the same thing. And then there are these other phrases: I am who I am. Same thing, like I am. As soon as you say the word I enough, you can't help but go, well, who? Who? You know, mm. I am? And, like, and so it's kind of inquiry mm. that takes you to the places, at least that I like to go, which as you and I discussed before, is kind of like the self that is observing, the self that is listening, the self that is the witness consciousness, to me is the self that I want to spend more time with so as to get out of the, the madness of, of outward life. Who am I? Who am I? Am I this? Am I that? Am I the one who's listening to me asking the question? Mm. That's kind of comes down to who am I? Who is listening to me asking who am I? Exactly. So naturally you're, your mindfulness practice is, is turning more into a kind of a self-inquiry as to who am I. And yeah. the way I see all, all meditations, it's like a banana that you give to the monkey mind, in a way. Right. You are saying, look, monkey, stay with this. The monkey stays with that. And, and you have to kind of uh, be constantly developing interest and attention towards that object of meditation, be it the breath yeah. or mantra or anything else. Yeah. And as the monkey of the mind stays with one single object, instead of jumping from branch to branch, it starts right. to calm down. And right. then there's the opportunity to look inside. Right. And the way I see it, the purpose of all meditation, the ultimate purpose of all meditation, is to discover who you are as consciousness. That, that you are not the things that yeah. appear inside of consciousness, but that you are the consciousness itself. For, for you, that happens through the, through the asking of who am I, eventually. Yeah. yeah, exactly right. And that I completely agree. That is, you know, I guess they call it non-duality, whatever it's called. You do finally understand that you are part of consciousness and that consciousness, in fact, is the stuff of the entire universe. They have proven, there was recently proven uh, again, that we, our actual physical matter is made up of the same stuff as dead stars. And if that's true, whatever it was that created the universe, Big Bang, God, whatever you want to call it, it is nothing but energy. It is pure energy. We are made up of that same exact energy. It is all manifesting and impermanent and changing. And just like radio waves and light waves and sound waves, there's nothing permanent about them or fixed. They just keep changing and morphing. It's like that whole thing with, you know, water can be ice can be missed you know it is just uh, all the same only it appears to be completely different each one and the more i meditate the more i realize that i am actually just in a vibrational modality uh with everything else but i'm also aware of the miracle of it right this is what i get more and more i am it is miraculous it is un 
unbelievable. <laughs> it is unlikely. The fact that the, the, the Big Bang didn't collapse in on itself within a nanosecond. There, you know, the chances of you and me being born with these giant supercomputers inside of our skulls, walking around on two legs, understanding that we're going to die, which is like pretty high consciousness, that's wildly unlikely that mm -hmm. any of that would happen. But we are here, and we were born. And somebody flicked on the switch. The light was flicked on. And it's going to be flicked off really any time now, mm. <laughs> at any second. And when it's gone, I don't know what else to think about it. I've seen dead people. I've watched dead people get buried. I've watched dead people get burned and cremated. And they, I think that's over then. I mm. think your window's done. You know, I think you get it for a fraction of a second and it's gone. And if you don't, I, I keep coming back to this, if one doesn't absolutely celebrate the fact that they're alive and awake and aware, then what the hell? What a waste to stumble around your life with a bag on your head, be miserable, and then dying. You put that beautifully. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the invitation of meditation, to understand uh -huh. who you are, to get free from your suffering, and to live a more fulfilling life exactly now as as we are approaching the end of this show i wanted to ask you and this is a question i ask all my guests if you could travel back in time and meet the old version of yourself in the beginning of your journey what <laughs> advice would you give yourself uh, my practice is only about three and a half years old total i mean i'm not like i'm a 20-year veteran on this right so all i'd have to do go back is three and a half years <laughs> but i would go back 13 and a half years and mm. 23 and a half years and 33 and a half years and 53 and a half years because I'm, I'm that old. And I would say, wake up. <laughs> really, uh, you know, I, I, I don't feel like I wasted my life. I've had a great life. I have a wonderful wife and I have a big family and I have a lot of friends and a lot of great stuff. But I, I still got myself in a depressed state. Despite all that, you know how you do that? You count your blessings and you then beat yourself up. You go, how in the world can you be depressed and anxious if you have, live in a nice house and you have a beautiful wife and uh, right? And you tick off all the things and you, all you do is use to beat yourself up with. Mm. So I had all those things and still got depressed. And Border Wars wasn't the only depression I'd had. I'd, I'd had others. And they were horrible. They were miserable. It shocked and surprised me. I'm not the kind of person most people would think could get depressed. Truth is, you know, and I've done my share of therapy, and I'm actually in therapy right now, and I think I'm getting a hold of some of the story, mm -hmm. the famous stories we all have. But actually, I think therapy is good and helpful, and I think a wonderful complement to meditation. It can be. Uh, Jack Cornfield and Tara Brock were both our psychotherapists mm. as well, right? Mm. <laughs> as great teachers. So there is a place for it. But I tell you, if somebody had to say, choose one, I would choose a real meditation practice, hmm. even if I had to give up psychotherapy, because maybe you'll stumble upon some of the, uh, unlock some of the mysteries of your past eventually anyway. Hmm. But without a meditation practice, I know people have been in therapy for 30 years and are just as miserable today as they were when they started. Right? So I would go back to my old self and say, hurry up and get to 58 and have your goddamn crisis so you can get on the path. Uh, Nicholas, it was an uh, absolute pleasure to talk to you. I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. If people want to know more about you, where would they go? 
I don't have a website up right now. I used to have one, but it was really about me giving speeches about border wars. And it's not really about meditation. But if they're really kind of curious, they certainly look on Facebook. They can look on LinkedIn. They can Google border wars, and they will find a ton of it. It is everywhere. It's on YouTube. It's on Hulu. You can't miss border wars. And if they want a glimpse into what drove me here, I would invite them to look at that and then just keep Googling until they find me. Excellent. You know, it's not every day that one is invited to talk about one's journey. So it, it was lovely and exciting, and, and I appreciate the opportunity. Excellent. It was very inspiring for me, and I bet for our listeners as well. So there you go. Thank you very much for listening. You can find the show notes for this episode with all the links, names, and resources mentioned at livingthere.com. If this is your first time listening, thank you for coming. We bring a great variety of guests from all walks of life and practitioners of different meditation techniques, so be sure to stick around. Please subscribe via your favorite RSS feed or iTunes. And if you have learned something valuable today, it would mean a lot to me if you leave a comment. You can follow me on Twitter at geo underscore self. And as usual, we end it with a quote. What we are today comes from our thoughts of yesterday and our present thoughts build our life of tomorrow. Our life is the creation of our mind. Buddha.